in the fall of 2004, uh, I was newly married. I had just started my first full-time job post-college as a lab technician for a, a, a biotech company outside of Pittsburgh. And all the while, I was also trying to discern, trying to sort my way through what I believe God was calling me, prodding me, guiding me to be a pastor. And so with all of that going on inside my mind and heart, I was overwhelmed, to say the least, and in need of encouragement, in need of reassurance from somebody that I trusted, from a friend, from a mentor. Enter my longtime friend and mentor, uh, Jeff Arnold, who still serves as the pastor of my mom and dad's church in, in the Pittsburgh area. Uh, such an intentional guy, just a great pastor who pursues people. And I, I learned a lot about what I do today from Jeff. And so I remember him after church one day, just pulling me aside and, and, and saying, Dane, I'd like to have lunch with you on a regular basis. I'll come up downtown Pittsburgh. I'll meet you. We'll go to this little place. It's called Primanti Brothers. If you don't know what that is, you need to check out what Primanti Brothers is. Uh, they have wonderful sandwiches. They're this high. You can get Capicola on there. You can get pastrami. It's coleslaw, French fries, and you can even get an egg on top to give you some extra cholesterol and protein. So it's this high. You can't possibly, unless you like unlatch your jaws like a snake, you can't get around them. You have to kind of cut it in half and go at it that way. We met at Primanti Brothers on Thursdays about every other week. He gave me books to read, scripture passages to learn, and he prayed with me and talked with me. He was a mentor in my life. He was a pastor who brought encouragement and reassurance to me at a difficult time. What I want to put before you as we tackle this passage this morning is that pastoral reassurance fuels Christian disciples. Pastoral reassurance fuels Christian disciples. Who has provided pastoral care encouragement and reassurance to you in your journey of faith, no matter where you are on that journey, perhaps just starting the journey or seasoned along the journey, who has God brought along the way to encourage you at a strategic moment, to reassure you, to help you, to guide you? Friends, these people are a gift to us. They're a grace to us, and we need to thank God for them. This morning, we see on full display how pastoral assurance fuels Christian disciples. So let's turn together in our Bibles to the letter of 1 Thessalonians. The letter of 1 Thessalonians in the Bibles on your chairs. You can find that on page 986. Page 986. This morning, as I mentioned earlier, we're starting a new sermon series in this letter that Paul wrote. Our practice at Beacon is to alternate books of the Bible. So we just finished about a four-month series in Genesis chapters 1 through 11 entitled God the Creator and God the Redeemer. And so having concluded that Old Testament series, we now start a summer series in the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians. The title of this series will be Power in Life, Hope in Death. Power in Life, Hope in Death. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that provides us power to live the Christian life well, to live in holiness and purity. And it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that gives us hope in the face of our own death. Unless Jesus comes back sooner, all of us are facing death. 
And this letter is key in teaching Christians how to think about that, how to prepare for that, how to have hope in the face of death. So power in life, hope in death. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Uh, if you need a Bible, I should mention we always love to give Bibles away in the lobby on the bookshelves there on the right. You can get a black hardback Bible. Uh, if you need one for a friend, by all means, take one for them as well. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I'm going to read the entire chapter. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Th Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to you to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, as we begin this sermon series, I want to lay some groundwork for us, some background here. So during Paul's second missionary tour, his second missionary journey, along about the years 49 to 51 AD, he's traveling westward across the Roman Empire, planting churches as he goes. As he travels west, he goes into the Roman province of Macedonia, what is now northern Greece. And he plants a church in the city of Philippi. And shortly thereafter, he enters another city. After being imprisoned in Philippi, he's released. He goes into Thessalonica, another Macedonian city. And he does three weeks worth of gospel preaching there. And by God's grace, people are converted to Christ. A church is born. You can read about this in Acts 16 and 17. In fact, it would be a great homework assignment for you this week just to do some background reading in Acts as we spend the next 10 weeks here in 1 Thessalonians. Thessalonica was a prominent city positioned strategically along a harbor and along a, a travel route east to west, a, a busy road called the Ignatian Way. So it's positioned there, lots of commerce, lots of trade, lots of education. It's a prominent city, economically flourishing, roughly 100,000 people. So Paul arrives there, and for three consecutive weeks, he preaches the good news of the gospel. And a collection of Jews and Gentiles come to believe in Christ for salvation. It's a miraculous work, as any salvation is. But after those three weeks, some Jewish opponents of Paul stir up rioters and they chase Paul out. The host of Paul, a man named Jason, is imprisoned. He lives in Thessalonica. So he's imprisoned and we see the, the reality of persecution and opposition that this 
church faces. We see even in this passage in chapter 1, they received the word with much affliction. Paul will allude to that affliction later in chapters 2 and 3. They knew what it was to suffer, yet to have joy in the Holy Spirit in their suffering. One of the hallmarks of Christianity is to have joy as you suffer for Christ's name. So life is difficult for them. These are brand new Christians that are suffering, and Paul, their teacher, has to leave prematurely earlier than he wanted. There was more teaching, more reinforcement to give them, but he had to leave. He ends up in Corinth some months later, and he's anxious about them. You know, you read Paul's pastoral heart. He talks about the anxiety of the churches on his heart and on his mind. He cares about the people and the churches that he planted. So he's concerned about them. He can't go himself, yet he sends his mentee, Timothy, to go up and to visit the Thessalonican, the Thessalonican church. Timothy, after several weeks, comes back to Corinth and shares this report about how they're doing. And by and large, it's positive, yet there are some concerns and a couple big ones at that. One of the major concerns that Timothy brings back to Paul is that they are shaky on their understanding of the return of Christ. And as a result, they're, they're seeping into hopelessness, sinking into fear and insecurity. Some people in the church have died unexpectedly. And they worry that these people who've died unexpectedly have somehow missed out on the return of Christ. That, that, that they're lost. That they won't be gathered to Jesus when he comes again. And so, so they're, they're dealing with a, a despair, a hopelessness. And so Paul will address that very strategically in chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. He'll talk about the return of Christ. We also see that they're dealing with just some sin issues in the church. Some sexual immorality. This is one of the most helpful passages in all the Bible that speaks to the reality of sexual sin. Early on in chapter 4, a passage that we need to hear today in this cultural moment they needed to hear it too. There's nothing new under the sun. Sexual sin is a reality in the church. And so Paul addresses that, what it looks like to live pure lives. There's also an issue of work ethic. Some of these Christians have kind of slacked off. They're not working hard. They're mooching off more affluent people in the church. And so Paul's going to systematically deal with these pastoral issues very tenderly, but very decisively here in the letter. And his driving theme is going to be, in Christ, there's power for life and hope in death. Power for life. In Christ, we have everything we need for godly living. Everything that we need to live well, to pursue purity, to work hard in our jobs. There's power for life. There's also hope in death. Hope as we stare down death's door. And unless Christ comes before, we all stare down that door. How do we approach it with hope? That's where we're headed. This is encouragement to the church then and to the church today. Power in life, hope in death. Now to organize our time in this text, I want to highlight four reminders that Paul provides to reassure these Christians. Four reminders that Paul provides to reassure these Christians in Thessalonica and to reassure us as well. So we see here in the, in the greeting, which is customary to a first century Greco-Roman letter, 
Paul, Sylvanus, that is Silas, another name for Silas, one of Paul's ministry teammates, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. Again, a customary greeting in a first century letter. You see who the sender is and you see who the recipients are. Paul, Silas, and Timothy are the senders. They're a collective whole, a ministry team that's sending this letter. And the Thessalonian Christians are the recipients. Paul lists his full team and notice, unlike other letters, he does not give his ministry credentials. He doesn't say, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He doesn't say that. And I believe that this is strategic. One of the issues that they had in the letter is some disappointment because Paul sent Timothy and didn't go himself on the follow-up trip. And so Paul, later in the letter, will kind of defend Timothy. No, 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 he is as good as me. No pastoral preference here, friends. Timothy is my teammate. We work as a unified whole. He is as good as me. In fact, he will call Timothy God's co-worker. How about that for some encouragement? God's co-worker is Timothy, one who works with God in the ministry of the gospel. And so we see some pastoral preference that the Thessalonians had. They're angry that the lead guy didn't come. What? We got to settle for Timothy. And Paul's going to teach them, no, 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 we're a united whole. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, he doesn't give his credentials. He presents them as a team so that they can receive the, the pastoral encouragement from whomever he sends, Timothy, Silas, or Paul. Friends, I think this is helpful to beware pastoral preference in your own church community. Whoever it is that ministers to you, that visits you in the hospital, that preaches a sermon from this pulpit, whether it's Dylan or me or one of the other elders, receive it as a gift. God has presented elders in this church and other churches to serve the body of Christ, to build us up together. And sometimes in our sinfulness, we can have pastoral preference. I remember that same year that, that I shared with you, the fall of 2004, I had done doing some, been doing some youth ministry at another church that was not my parents. And as I did uh, some youth ministry there, I was there on one Sunday morning and uh, members of my mom and dad's church showed up to this other church. And I said, hey, how are you guys doing? You're visiting here? He's like, yeah. We heard the associate pastor was preaching. And so we went to the other church. And in my heart, and I wasn't even a pastor. I was just doing it. Youth minister, I just, my heart sank because what were those folks doing? They were being preferential in who was pastoring them. The lead pastor's not there. We're going to take this Sunday off and we're going to go to another church. Because the associate pastor's words may not be as good. That, that, is, that is not good thinking. Paul is careful to present his team as a united front. Together they serve this body, they love this body, they have planted this body. Beware of pastoral preference. Even as you think about your own leadership here at the church, we are all as elders given by God to you for the building of your faith. In this greeting, Paul is careful to mention an important theological, theological truth about their identity. Notice what he says as he speaks to them as the recipients, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That powerful prepositional phrase that you can easily overlook in 
God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a church in God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. They are bonded to him, inseparably united to him. That is their identity. And Paul's point to them, a church struggling with assurance, struggling with security, is that they are in God. They are bonded to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ through the glue of the Holy Spirit. They are in the Godhead, the Trinity, inseparably bonded to him. Paul talks about this in other letters. For example, his letter to the Colossians, he says, friends, your life is hid with God in Christ. Your life is hid. It is in him under the shadow and the shelter of his wings. Your life is hid with God in Christ, bonded with him, united to him. What reassurance, what power, what encouragement for people who are fearful and despairing, overwhelmed. No matter the darkness of this life, of the valleys that we walk through, if you're a believer in Christ, you are bonded to him. You are hid with God in Christ, inseparably united to him. He's with you through it all. It may not seem it when you stare at your circumstances, but friends, he's there with you. You are in him, bonded to him. He's your good shepherd who will not let you go. So Paul provides first a reminder of their union with God. Secondly, he provides a reminder of the security of their salvation. He provides a reminder of the security of their salvation. We see this in verses 2 through 5. Let's read these verses again. Paul says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before God and before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Notice, though, absent from them in the body, Paul is present with them in the spirit through his persistent prayers. We remember you unceasingly in our prayers, regularly interceding for these brothers and sisters. He loves them. And one of the ways he displays his love is through prayer. Friends, realize one of the ways that you can love each other as a church is to pray with each other in, in the flesh and to pray for each other when you're apart. Paul expresses his love and concern through his praying for them. Remain steadfast in prayer for your brothers and sisters. We see here Paul's three favorite words. You know what they are? They're on our marquee out here. Faith, hope, and love. The, the essential characteristics of a Christian. Faith, hope, and love. Sometimes called the Pauline triad. We see it here. I remember before God, our Father, your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is work, labor, and steadfastness that is rooted to, flowing from their faith, their love, and their hope. So as he reflects on their faith, their love, and their hope that he remembers when he was with them for those three short weeks, he's grateful, and he continues to pray that that faith, hope, and love would, would grow. 
as he reflects on their faith, their hope, and their love, he encourages them with this statement. Verse 4, for we know, brothers, loved by God, you're loved, you're cherished by God, that he has chosen you. Now, what's Paul doing here? He's reassuring them, encouraging them of the security of their salvation. And that security is not based on their behavior, but on their father who has chosen them in his sovereign love, his sovereign grace. He has gathered these people to himself. He has scooped these people from their sin and has welcomed them into his loving arms. We know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. What encouragement, what reassurance. God loves you, and before the foundation of the world, he has chosen you in Christ to be saved. Paul is just moved with pastoral compassion. He seeks to reassure them. Remember the unexpected deaths of some of their friends. Just see it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. They're worried, they're disturbed over these unexpected deaths, fearing that these people who've died are lost forever, that they've, they'll miss out on the return of Christ. And Paul's saying, no, 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 you are chosen in the beloved. You are loved by God. He is pastorally aware of their situation, and he's speaking to them in tenderness, assuaging their fears, working in their despair to bring hope. Their eternal future is secure. The eternal future of those who've died in Christ is secure. Christ will come again and gather them to be with him. They are not lost. Their salvation is certain because it is in God's hands. They are held fast by his grip. Isn't it good news, friends, that what keeps us Christians is not your grip on God, but on God's grip on you? That's good news. My family loves to swim in the summer, summertime. We have a, a membership at the Underwood Pool in Belmont. It's a great way to meet friends and to swim together. We oftentimes visit Laura's dad. He lives in Oklahoma. He has a pool. Soren's got a thumbs up. Cecile has been a fish from the time she came out of mommy's tummy. She's not afraid of the water. Soren is a little bit different. It took some coaxing for him to get into the water. He was scared. And so I just said, Soren, come on. Come, just hold on to daddy. Hold on to daddy. He said, I'm scared. I'm scared. Come, just hold on. Hold on to daddy. He says, okay. Daddy, I'm holding on to you. And so we go into the three, three and a half feet. He's holding on to daddy. He's holding on to daddy. What kept Soren secure in the water? Was it his grip on daddy? Not ultimately. There was a greater grip on my son, and that was my grip. His father held on to him. Okay? And so it is in salvation. Yes, we need to cling to the Lord Jesus, but never forget there's a greater grip on you that sustains you through the ups and downs of life, the dark days. It's his grip, his choosing, his power that keeps you eternally secure. He has chosen us in love before the foundation of the world. That is good news. That is reassuring. Our salvation is grounded on God's grip of us. Praise him for his care. Praise him for his powerful arms that will never leave us. If you're a believer in Christ, his grip is on you. If you're not a believer in Christ, he wants to grab hold of you. Would you receive him today? Look to him in faith. 
Paul provides a reminder of their union with God. Paul provides a reminder of their security, their salvation. Thirdly, Paul provides a reminder of their radiant witness. A reminder of their radiant witness. Let's read verses 6 through 8. Paul says, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so we need not say anything at all. What an amazing testimony. Paul is simply reminding them of it, of their conversion, of their salvation story. It's a beautiful reality what God has done in their lives, and they're prone to forget it in the midst of their discouragement. In the midst of our discouragement, sometimes we're prone to forget the deeds of the Lord in our own lives. So he pastorally comes alongside them and reminds them of their conversion. They are imitators of Paul and of the Lord Jesus. Friends, that's what a disciple is. What does Jesus say to the disciples when he first called them along the the Sea of Galilee? Follow me. Imitate me. And Paul, as he does his ministry, he just says the same thing. He says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. You follow me as I follow Christ. As you make disciples in this life, all you're doing is, hey, follow me as I follow Christ. Everybody needs a mentor, a discipler. That's what he says. You became imitators of me and of the Lord. You followed Christ. You trusted in him. You turned from idols to serve the living and true God. He's reminding them of their turning, of their conversion. He reminds them that they received the word with much affliction, with this strange joy. Notice the collision here. With much affliction and with great joy. That collision happens only in Christianity. The strange joy that comes when a Christian suffers well. Why? Because the Christian is not looking at temporal circumstances. A Christian's eyes can be lifted to what is eternal to where they are and where they will be with Christ forever and ever. You received the word and you had this compelling and strange joy in the midst of the affliction. Their dramatic conversion has sounded forth throughout the Roman provinces of Achaia and Macedonia. These are big land areas And the news of their turning, the news of them becoming Christians is radiating outward. Paul doesn't even need to tell people about it. It is just going like wildfire. A powerful change has taken place by the grace of God in their lives. Friends, the reality is every testimony of conversion is powerful. Sometimes we buy into this false thinking that, oh, you know, I grew up in a Christian household. My parents modeled the gospel well. It's unremarkable. I'm squeamish to share it. That is ridiculous. There's no such thing as an unremarkable testimony. Because everyone is a miracle. Only God can save a sinner. Whatever your story is, Thank God for it. Write it down so that you can remember it later. I have mine in a little red spiral notebook. And I will go back to it frequently. That day in May of 2001, when I wrote it down, because I'm prone to forget it. In the midst of the, the, the doubts that I deal with, even as a, as a pastor, as a Christian of 21 years, 
I need to be reminded of my conversion, of my testimony. It encourages me in what God has done and what he will do. If you're a Christian here, write down your testimony this afternoon. If you've never done it, write it down. It doesn't have to be long. You can use shorthand. Write it down and keep it somewhere safe. It'll encourage you to remember it, and it'll encourage you and equip you to share it. Because the reality is, your testimony is a tool in your hands to share with people that they can hear of the work of the Lord and be saved themselves. Every testimony is a miracle. There's no such thing as an unremarkable one. You know, the very thing that we're sometimes embarrassed of, I grew up in a Christian household. My parents modeled the, the, the gospel well. I didn't, I didn't really kind of have like this youth, hairpin turning moment of going from, you know, wayward living. But as a parent, listen, that's what I pray for for my kids, that they wouldn't have to know the discipline of the Lord through behavior that is maligning the gospel. But no, they, they, they would see it modeled. They would understand their sin. And they would turn to Christ and receive him as Savior. Like, that's a, that's a miracle. That's the very thing that we pray for as parents. No salvation story is unremarkable. Write it down and share it frequently. It's a blessing to you. It'll be a blessing to others. If you're here today, I wonder, do you have a testimony? Do you have a story of you trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior. If you, if you sit in your seat right here and say, do I have a story? Friend, maybe you don't, and that's okay. But know this, today is the day of salvation. Every moment where someone preaches the gospel or shares the gospel on the tee or at work or in the park is the day of salvation. As the word of the Lord goes forth through proclamation, through sharing in one-on-one -on -one conversations, through Bible studies, those are the days of salvation. So maybe today is the day that you trust in Christ, that you say, yes, my life is a mess. I've never trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins. I'm going to do that today because that gift is held out to you. I want to believe in Jesus. I want to make him my Lord, and I want to follow him for a lifetime, that his grip would be around me, securing me. That's the gospel, and it can be yours today if you would just open your hands, open your arms, receive Christ as Savior. Four areas of pastoral reassurance, four reminders, a, a reminder of their union with God, a reminder of their security of salvation, a reminder of their radiant witness, fourthly and finally, a reminder of sound doctrine, a reminder of sound doctrine. Paul says in verses 9 and 10, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turn from God, turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Notice as Paul reminds them of their testimony, as he reminds them of their conversion, he slips in some theology, doesn't he? He slips in some sound doctrine there in verse 10. The Son of God is coming back from heaven, the one who was raised from the dead, and the one who delivers us from the wrath to come. Paul is slipping, like any good teacher, he's, he's slipping in sound doctrine wherever he can. As he reminds them of their conversion, he says, he's coming back for you, the one who's resurrected, and the one who delivers us from the wrath to come. 
in these statements, Paul is anticipating what he's going to address later in the letter. He anticipates what he'll say in chapter 4. The Lord Jesus is going to come in glory and gather with him those who are dead in Christ and those who remain, those who are alive, will be caught up together in a meeting with the Lord in the air. They will be with him forever. He's the one who's coming again. And in chapter 5, Paul's encouragement to live well in light of the return, deny ungodliness, deny worldly lusts, wait for the Lord in holiness, and on that day you don't have to worry about wrath, you will receive his mercy. Chapter 5, God has destined us not for wrath, but to obtain salvation. He is teaching them sound doctrine. Jesus has borne their wrath for them. They don't have to worry about it. Friends, doctrine is life. I was taught in seminary at Gordon-Conwell right here on the North Shore. Doctrine is life. Doctrine is not something dry and dusty on a bookshelf in a library that nobody goes to. Doctrine is life. You and I, our eternal futures are secure based on the truth of God's word, based on sound doctrine. Hold on to it. Love it. Let it seep from your head to your heart to your hands. That's the pathway of sound doctrine. It can't just stay up here. It's got to go from your head to your heart to your hands into actions. Your head, your thoughts, your affections, and your heart, what you love, and how you serve. That's the, the pathway, the flow of sound doctrine. From the head to the heart, through the hands. Doctrine is life. It will sustain you in the difficult days of the Christian life. I want to encourage you to read some sound doctrine. Here's a primer. You can get this book. We'll get one for you. Wayne Grudem, Christian Beliefs. It's a little condensed version of his larger volume, Christian Beliefs. There's 14 or 15 chapters. He's just going to go through systematically through some categories in theology. It will bless you. Wayne Grudem, Christian Beliefs. Just, just start there. And we'd love to share more with you from there. Doctrine is life. A reminder of their union with God, a reminder of their security of their salvation, a reminder of their radiant witness, and a reminder of sound doctrine. We have the privilege this morning not only to, to hear doctrine preached, but to see doctrine displayed through the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. You know, we love to have our kids in this room because what we're about to do is a display of sound doctrine as we hold the communion elements the bread and the cup, it is displaying Jesus whose body was broken, whose blood was shed so that we could be saved and our eternal securities, our eternal future secure. So we get to display that through the Lord's Supper. I want to invite you, if you're a Christian here, I want you to partake of the Lord's Supper. If you're not yet a Christian, I want to encourage you to abstain. And in these moments, consider what the bread and the cup represent. So you too also could come to trust in Christ. And at the next opportunity that we have, celebrate the Lord's Supper with us. So I'm going to pray for us. And then we'll lead together, serve together in the Lord's Supper. Father, we, we thank you for your grace in our lives. We're thankful for your word, which teaches us our heads, our hearts, and our hands. God, thank you for the, the pastoral counsel found in your word for your servant, Paul, 
Silas, Timothy, who loved this church, who prayed for this church, who ministered to this church. God, would you help us to love each other, to minister and care for each other in this church context as well. Deal with our fears, our insecurities, our worries. God, help us to look to you, to your word, to sound doctrine, to find hope, encouragement, and strength. Guide us now as we celebrate and enjoy the Lord's Supper. In Jesus' name, amen.